This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which most episodes I will select sort of at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 83rd episode of The Quarter Bin, we are looking at a seasonal Halloween Times book, Phantom Stranger number 21, from DC Comics cover dated September-October 1972. Before we start talking about the contents of the issue, you know, the stories, I do need to talk about this book and how I got it so cheap, because this is not a traditional quarter book. The appeal of this show largely, I think, is that I'm talking about books that you can find in cheap bins, like books from the New Universe, or, sorry Shag, the Ultraverse, or the Amalgams, or, sadly, Doom 2099. We've covered New Avengers, Checkmate, Micronauts. Just about any book published in the early to mid-90s can be found in the cheapest of the cheap bins. You've all dug through multiple cheap bins, I assume, and there are series and books that you see over and over and over. But this is not one of those standard cheap books that all you need to do is look in the cheap bins and you'll find them. No, this book, in any kind of decent condition, is way out of the standard quarter bin price range. A quick search online found that a 4.0 CGC rated copy of this issue is on sale through Amazon at $4.50. So how did I get this issue, which I fully acknowledge is not a quarter bin book in the traditional sense, how did I get it so cheap? First, I have to acknowledge that the issue that I have is pretty well beat up. It's sort of in that range of the 4.0, maybe a little lower. It is held together. There are no rips or obvious stains on it, but it's offset, if you know what I mean. The the spine has been rolled over. And it's just been read a lot. It it has that, let's say, well-loved, well-read kind of look to to the issue. Now, the exact copy that I have, the day before I bought it, was in a dollar box. And if I hadn't bought it on the day I bought it, it would have, again, been priced at a buck the next day. But, on Free Comic Book Day 26, World's Greatest Comics priced those books at three for a dollar. And before Shag sends in a sternly worded email about three for a dollar not being a quarter, blah, blah, blah. The store offered enough various other freebies and volume discounts and buy X, get Y free offers that between all the sales and the discounts, it worked out that the books I got that day averaged right around 25 cents. And that was good enough for me. So I admit that this is not a book readily available for the cheap most of the time, maybe never again, but it's an issue of Phantom Stranger. And it's Halloween times, so it's just too good a fit to get too, too upset about. To set the stage for this episode, 
I'll note that the issue has two stories in it. The lead feature is an 18-pager starring the title character, The Phantom Stranger. And to discuss that one, I'll be joined by a special guest. And then after that, I'll tackle on my own the six-page backup featuring the Ghost Breaker himself, Dr. Terrence 13. We're skipping feedback for this episode as we're going to be a little on the long side already with a guest and two stories to cover. So we're going to take a break here and we'll come back with the cover story from Phantom Stranger number 21 featuring the Phantom Stranger and also featuring a guest. Daddy, has Hulk always been green? Well, no. Daddy, has Spider-Man ever been married? Well, that's quite complicated. Daddy, did Superman have a mullet? What? No, there's no... Daddy, does Howard the Duck use foil language? Okay, stop. I must have done something wrong with your education somewhere along the line, but it's time to rectify that. You mean... Don't say it! You're doing another podcast? Oh no. Podcast? Yes. Mark's Mess Podcast. An ongoing podcast to introduce and inform my children about the world of comics, science fiction, and general geekery. Join me each month along with my eldest daughter, Charlotte. Where's my fiver? And my youngest, Catherine. Me! As we explore all this together. Find us at marksmesspodcast.blogspot.co.uk On Facebook at marksmesspodcast and on Twitter at Mark's Mess Podcast without the T. A new podcast. On a new site. Same old Mark. <sighs> and we're back. And by we, I mean myself and a first time relatively geeky guest. He's a man who got into comic book podcasting and has suffered through having to deal with a certain irredeemable co-host <laughs> for a number of years just to finally get a chance to podcast about his true loves movies and bob dylan welcome to the quarter bin rob kelly hello alan i feel like in the interest of transparency i should say good afternoon because that's when we're <laughs> recording this but considering what we're talking about i should say good evening good evening well, it's great to have you on the show I, it's great to be here. I, I feel like I owe you, considering how many times you've been on Pod Dylan. But uh, you know, I hope that you enjoyed those processes anyway. This is—it's not payola here. We can, we all enjoy each other's <laughs> show, so I, I'm I'm happy to be here. You are known for having a wide range of fandoms in comic books. I'm basing that on the insane number of blogs I know you've set up over the years. But among those fandoms, as I learned from a episode of Secret Origins. Is that you're a fan of the Phantom Stranger? I absolutely am. I've loved him ever since I first saw him, which was probably would have had to have been in an issue of Justice League of America. I always liked this character, despite what uh, Diablo Frank says. I was not a Richie Rich. <laughs> I had certain limited money to get comics, and JLA was the the one that I never missed out on. And so, anytime he appeared, I liked it. What is it about this guy that that works for you? You know, it's funny. I, I used to say that I like him because of the mystery angle, that he was just he would pop in, do his business and get out. But I really like a lot of his solo comics, which we will be getting to in a moment, uh, where he's the star. And, and so and I really like those, too. So I guess that whole thing of that he's mysterious isn't it's not just that, because clearly he's the, the main focus here. And we see him without his hat and stuff. Uh, and I still like him anyway. So there's I don't know. His his visual look is great. 
I love his just the way he looks. I think it's really cool. I like the idea of a guy who sort of flits in and out of the main DCU and shows up when he's needed. I, I think that I like that he has sort of indeterminate powers. And the name is great, the Phantom Stranger. Yeah. That's just a wonderful handle. <laughs> and he, he certainly has has a distinctive look. I like that it's not really a costume. I mean, you know, right. I, if, if you walked around like this, people would give you a little bit of a weird look. But but you know, he doesn't have he doesn't have like a big PS on his chest. You know. <laughs> I don't think it would have lasted long if that had been the direction they they. Yeah, if they had turned him into Super Phantom Stranger at the end of the '60s, like you know they did for Frankenstein, and they were like Super GI Joe or whatever. I mean, the you know the Spectre and Dead Man managed to pull off sort of having a superhero-ish kind of looks Mm -hmm. within that sort of mysterious realm, but he's a little more like maybe John Constantine, where he doesn't have a uniform or an outfit, but he has a look. Yeah, and it's never really been changed when you think about it. Right. No, no one's ever – and DC, don't get any ideas. <laughs> it's really – his look has never been revised, never been really tweaked over the years, which is kind of remarkable considering everybody always wants to put you know their stamp on whatever it is they're doing. That was a time – was it the mid-90s where he was leather with the pouches and the guns? <laughs> yeah, there, you, you, <laughs> there was that. The phantom guns? Not that. That's right. Okay. We never went that way. No. Fortunately – we never went that way. For this book, Phantom Stranger 21, do you have a, a physical copy of this? Is this currently in your collection? Uh, it used to be. Two stories related to that. One, this issue was the first Phantom Stranger solo comic I ever purchased. Back when I was a kid, I when we moved to New Jersey in 1979, uh, I discovered a year or two after that that there were such a thing as comic book stores. I didn't know that that was a thing. You know what I mean? So the first comic book store I ever visited was called El Dorado Comics. Great name. And I went there and, you know, to like a 10-year-old, it was like a wonderland. You know, the whole store <laughs> right. full of comic books. It wasn't just, this, uh, you know, a spinner rack or whatever. And they had all the long – they had the hundreds of long boxes. And, you know, I was getting a chance to to look into the history of comics that I'd never seen before. So it was just amazing. Now, I had a limited amount of money to spend, so I had to like – be very careful about what I wanted to buy. So I bought the new stuff that I wanted, but I also wanted to buy some old stuff. And so that meant basically buying the cheapest books I could find, which you will appreciate, of course. Well, of course. So that's, that's why you're here. It was kind of like, okay, let me look at the titles I know I'm interested in. Justice League, Brave and the Bold, Star Wars. And what out of those sections can I get super cheap? Because I have a couple – I only have a couple of bucks. So I ended up buying the most beat-up books they had. And I bought Justice League number 62, which was like in fair minus condition. And then I bought this. I bought Phantom Stranger number 21 because I always like the Phantom Stranger. I like Jim Aparo. And they had this book for like probably a dollar or something because it was so beat up. I eventually filled out my entire Phantom Stranger collection. I bought every issue of the series, especially the ones by Ween and Aparo, which to me are still the best Phantom Stranger ever done. Uh, I don't own them anymore because a bunch of years ago, uh, Len Ween had a house fire. And all of his comics were destroyed, his entire collection, which amazing. Imagine what that collection yeah, must have been wow. like. And his buddy, Mark Evanier, who I am uh, friends with, uh, had a, a fundraising – not a fundraising, but like a drive to replace Len's collection. So anybody that had any comics on the particular list that Mark distributed that wanted to donate, you know, you would then write to Mark and say, hey, Mark, I have you know Marvel Team number 17 – Take it off the list. I'll send it to Len. So I ended up sending Len Wein all of the issues of Phantom Stranger that he worked on. So uh, I don't own them anymore. They are in Mr. Wein's collection, which I think is a good place for them because, of course, he wrote to me the best Phantom Stranger. (laughs) 
Wow. Well, let, let me say as a professional educator, that is an excused absence. We will accept that as a reason. <laughs> I've never gotten one of those before by any teacher ever. So it's coming a little late, but it, it's still good. So this is The Phantom Stranger, number 21. It had the cover price of 20 cents, meaning I acquired this book for a, like a 25% markup. That is the worst part of getting these old books. <laughs> Even when you get them cheap, you're, you're, you're not getting that, oh, this is three ninety five, and I'm only getting it for 50 right. cents or a quarter. <laughs> Now, and I'll tell you, if I if I see this on a rack, especially at whatever age that would have been for you, 10 or 12 or whatever, boy, would this cover have pulled me in. Oh, the cover is unbelievable. It is dynamite. Yeah. This is by Jim Aparo. We got the stranger who's in the background, of course, sort of separate from the action, aloof, distant. The action, such as it is, is we've got a shadow of someone seated in agony. Uh, when you read the story, or if you look closely, you see it's a guy in the electric chair. And then you've got folks at the bottom of the page, the, the witnesses to the execution, sort of staring off as well. It is Mr. Kubert, school graduate. This that is, is my pretty, <laughs> This is pretty impressive art, from what I can tell. Brilliantly staged. Because you said the action is actually taking place off the cover. I love the six different men are having very different reactions. The one guy mm-hmm. in the foreground is sweating as he's staring right at it. Another guy's looking a little sheepish. The other guy down in the corner is looking he's away. Just looking away. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one guy, there's the guy in the background is looking kind of like, I don't know about this. They're, they're all feeling very guilty about what they're watching and they're horrified. And the Phantom Stranger, you get the sense, is judging the six of them for sitting here watching this. And whoever composed this in terms of uh, putting together the cover – Kudos to them for not putting any blurbs on it. I mean, you have all the crap up top, all new stories, best in comics, but there's no story blurb. There's no, because you don't need it. If this isn't going to get you to spend 20 cents, nothing is. There's no blurb that's going to make you buy it if, if, the, if the artwork didn't work. What I'm getting from the art here, the only language that I have to explain it is perspective or depth. Because we have this action that's happening behind us. That's where the the witnesses are staring off over our shoulder. But what we're seeing, looking at it, is the shadow. And then you've got the phantom there in whatever layer or background, foreground, midground, whatever that he's at. So without the proper artistic language, what I see is depth and perception or perspective and layers happening here. But it is impressive. Yeah, it's wonderfully staged. Aparo, I mean, everybody's heard me go on and on about Jim Aparo, but even, even, I dare say it, even more than he was on Aquaman, I feel him on Phantom Stranger is him at the height of his power. Him, This and his Batman run are, are him at his absolute best. Mm-hmm. There are two stories in this issue. We can only afford Rob's fees to cover the first one, though. You cannot afford me for what I would charge. <laughs> okay, that's fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, This is the story, The Resurrection of Johnny Glory, written by Len Wein, art by Jim Aparo. I wanted to mention that Wein is probably 23, 24, 25 at this time, early in his career, about a year before he co-created Swamp Thing. It was a dark and stormy night, and in a graveyard just outside State Prison stands the Phantom Stranger within these walls 
there exists a society in miniature with its own rules and regulations, its own givings and takings, its own ways of life and death. Inside the prison, death row inmate John Glory walks the last mile. A hand moves, a circuit closes, and the convicted killer is executed. Mr. Torque and his buddy Cadaver claim Glory's body from the morgue, but they aren't taking the body to the next of kin for a small funeral. They are, in fact, minions of Cerebus, of the Dark Circle, and deep inside Massacre Mountain, the rite of resurrection is performed, and Johnny Glory lives again. Now, at this point, I do need to point out, Rob, human resources laws were a lot more lax (laughs) 40-plus years ago, but I admit that if I were hiring for the morgue, or I don't know that Mr. Cadaver, or I would have let him in as one of the... It's just something about that. I'm sorry. He's not even trying to hide it. He's just laying it right out there. I mean, I know I'm biased and prejudiced, but uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. To say nothing for Massacre Mountain, but there may be some deep Worst dark... Disney ride ever. <laughs> I'm assuming there's some deep, dark historical significance to that name, but I don't know. Maybe at this point they would have changed it. I don't know. So, Cerebus, he has a task for the newly resurrected Johnny Glory to help him advertise the Supernatural Assassin Service. He sends Glory to kill Shandu Gamal, the spiritual leader of a small Mideastern country who is that time in America on a goodwill mission with his daughter Indira. Later in a bustling New England city, Gamal's motorcade is attacked by an assassin who is surprisingly not Johnny Glory. The Phantom Stranger does intervene, saving Gamal's life in gratitude. Gamal asks the Phantom Stranger to ride with him. When one of Gamal's people protests, the Phantom Stranger looks deeply into that man's eyes, and all doubts are removed. Glory watches from a crowd of onlookers. At the city's most fashionable hotel, Gamal snatches a medallion depicting the death god Sakiva from around the neck of one of his guards. Gamal's beliefs are in opposition to the supernatural, which has made him a target of the Dark Circle. The daughter, Indira, appears with glory, and Dad takes an immediate dislike to the recently resurrected murderer. Good instincts on that one, Dad. (laughs) He forbids Indira from seeing him, but she sneaks out to keep their date. He gives her a rose that gasses her into unconsciousness. Gamal receives the ransom note informing him that his enemies have the daughter. He sends the security forces out to retrieve her. Our man, the Phantom Stranger, reappears at this point, promising that he will find the daughter. Torque and Cadaver are torturing the girl with a swinging pendulum blade because it was left over from the Batman set. I don't... Batman 66 has that sort of vibe to it, but... The stranger intervenes, subdues the bad guys, and releases Indira from her restraints. But, left alone, Gamal himself is vulnerable. The death god Sakiva comes for him. Refusing to give in to superstition, he instead empties his revolver into the death god, to no effect. The death god retaliates by sicking the serpents of Gorgon on him. 
Again, the stranger intervenes, neutralizing the serpents with a counterspell of his own, calling on the blazing light of truth. Sakiva, the death god, is revealed to be the late Johnny Glory. This was the price for his resurrection. He recoils at his own reflection. This has been a lot for the non-superstitious, non-religious Gamal to take in, and he suffers a heart attack, but the Phantom Stranger refuses to let the man die. Glory returns to Massacre Mountain to exact his revenge on Cerebus. He hurls Cerebus into a spirit pool, which sets off a chain reaction that destroys Massacre Mountain. It is ended, as it must ever end. What all is considered, the flickering flame of evil burns only itself. The end. Wow. There's a lot going on in that. This is, I love this story. It's so good. It's so fun. Oh, it's wonderful. You know, it's a sort of a joke that's become cliche, but it applies here. Today, this would be a six-issue miniseries. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can oh. almost see where each issue would end, right? You can see where the act breaks are. There's so much there. Yeah, this is uh, – and it's funny because the, you look at the cover and, I mean, maybe maybe I'm the only one. But when you when you see this cover, I think you get the, the read. It's going to be like a very urban story. Like it's going to take place in a city – a lot like a New York at night, and then it switches over to mountains and all this. You know, it's really it does not take you where you think it's going to go. I love the character names, Johnny Glory. That's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, just great. This is so much. This feels like one of those you know 1972 TV movies, one of those horror things that they would have done. It just has that vibe to it, and it's got some. It's got sort of a a Val Luton horror movie Universal films kind of feel to it, and then the mm. demon reveal at the end. It's just. Right. Ween was so good at crafting this, these sorts of elements. And then, of course, Opera was just great at moody artwork and stuff. And so, and he manages to make Phantom Stranger work, even though there's many scenes of him just walking around in the day. Basically, becomes this spiritual leader's kind of buddy. It's like you would think the Phantom Stranger would completely not fit in that role, yeah. but yet he seems okay. He seems, he seems perfectly fine. Thought this was an, an interesting take on a Dalai Lama sort of character, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, sort of putting him in the midst of, a, of an action. Yeah, sequence, which is just so strange. I'm also a sucker for anything featuring like some weird death cult. Like those are oh, that's yeah. fun. I love and the, the guy's uh, mustache and mutton chop combination, fantastic. <laughs> I mean, he looks like he's in like pure Prairie League or something like that in one of those bands. <laughs> he is great. I love that guy. And you've got this weird misdirect of the first assassination attempt. Yeah, it's a the so, ween, ween crims in it. A lot of yeah, story beats so, in eighteen pages. So you've got our assassin going out there, and it's like, oh no, someone's gotten here before me. What problems would that have caused for him if someone else had gotten the kill? And then turns out that he has become Shiva, right, the death goddess. Mm-hmm. He's he's become the the death god here. Just uh, so many twists and turns, and Twilight Zone ish. Double backs and reveals. I love uh, Apero's drawing on page ten when we see uh, Sakiva the first time on the little on the uh, little oh, on amulet the thing. Yeah. I love that little demon because it reminds me of a story he did for I think it was House of Mystery called The Demon Within, which is my all time favorite Jim Apero story mm-hmm. about a little boy who can turn into a monster, and he he's not harmful. He just can't control it. And uh, eventually his family, which is like a kind of well-to-do society family, decides to 
take action because he's embarrassing them so so greatly. And the demon kind of reminds me of this, what he looks like here. Pear did great monster designs, and he just is a really creepy little monster. Just he's scary, even though we just see him on the medallion. He's not literally right. there, right. but he's really he's like he looks like a little homunculus. He's really creepy and weird. And the uh, the daughter is beautiful. I love him again. Pear drew beautiful women, and Johnny Gloria is kind of a mm-hmm. you know classic kind of guy. He's got his like a shirt open to his navel a little bit. <laughs> when he kidnaps uh, Indira, uh, and he wanders off and leaving the rose, you see a little musical note put over his head as he's whistle like he's whistling which is like oh, wow, a really right. creepy little detail he's like you know he's like dee, 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 dee. i can't whistle so i can't do it but he's just like you know he's having fun he's having fun doing this nasty stuff as he says yeah sorry about this you're just a victim of circumstance yeah i'm afraid i'm gonna less. have to borrow you for a while that yeah then you can hear him whistling off Oh, it's awful, awful little detail yeah yeah and i i, yeah, I love that uh, when uh, johnny glory sees himself in the mirror uh, I mean, they don't hold it because it's only a, a two pages later we mm-hmm. we get to see him. That would be the act break you're talking about if this was a TV right. movie of him, you know, realizing what he looks like. And when you when you finally do get to see what he looks like, that kind of looks like a Twilight Zone makeup. You know, the, right. the it has that kind of feel to it, like that family that gets their faces contorted when they put on the masks and stuff. It has that. You could see this being done in black and white on a Twilight Zone on just I mean, you, you couldn't have him thrown into a mountain. That's a little beyond the show's budget. But most of the stuff they really could have done. And, and the Phantom Stranger is, again, it's just perfect. What are the elements of a sort of Phantom Stranger story that this hits? What is it about this story that makes it not just a good sort of horror story? sort of fits in the Phantom Stranger's world. I like it that he, I mean, there are, I, again, I go back on my own thing because there are other stories of Phantom Stranger that I like that he's the main character in, but I kind of like that he's an, not an ancillary, but he's a side guy. He's coming into a story that's already going on. Mm-hmm. These, these people exist before the story takes place. They're going to exist after. The Phantom Stranger is inserting himself in this process, right. which I like. I've always liked that kind of thing. And again, I love the whole thing of like secret cults. Cause I mean, the seventies was, that was the, oh, the yeah. big, the, the big right. moment of like Satanism and all this kind of stuff that was, you know, Anton LaVey, all the things were, were really in, in the rise. And there was a lot in the literature and there was the, um, Leonard Nimoy show in search of, right. and like, they were always doing episodes about, you know, mysterious cults and things like that. And so, you know, the Phantom Stranger fit very squarely into the DC universe, but these stories feel like they take place on the margins. Right. While the Justice League is off taking on Kanjar Row, there's all this little weird stuff going on here on the side. <laughs> and here's the Phantom Strangers there to deal with it. You feel like this is what he's doing when he's not appearing with the JLA. Yeah, this is literally what he's taking care of. And when he has an off moment, then he shows up for a meeting and he has to vote to let Hawkgirl join or whatever. But, uh, you know, it, this is what he spends all his time doing. And I like that. I like that he sort of narrates it for himself. Mm-hmm. You know, he just sort of gives us that. I, it's a very I, classic yeah, element. I think that's part of where I get sort of the Twilight Zone. I mean, he's sort of Rod Serling. Yeah. In a lot of ways that he is. You know, he's He frames the story, the beginning and the end. I mean, he is inserted in a few places here and there, but one of the roles that he does fulfill is the storyteller. These guys, Ween and Apero, were just really simpatico. I think they just knew each other's strengths. I mean, Apero, of course, did inks and lettering, too. I mean, that that worked out perfectly. But, I mean, I just think Ween knew what settings to put things in and that that Apero could really pull it off and – uh, and Apero's staging is second to none. Just, he just is perfectly every. Not only is he well drawn, 
it's just beautiful to look at the shadows. I mean, mm-hmm. the opening, the opening panel on page five where cadaver and the other guy are carrying the coffin and there's all these deep shadows in it. And in the background, we see this altar and we see the weird symbol up there. Like it's, it's just, again, the guy really knew how to set any given scene to really heighten the drama. In that panel, there's a nice subtlety of, you said these guys have really long shadows behind them. Yep. And then in front of them is a low fire. Mm-hmm. Which you could envision accomplishing that. Yeah. You get the feeling he wanted these long shadows, ominous shadows, and then constructed a scene or staged a scene, uh, which is a, a phrase I'm going to start to use now. Thank you. <laughs> you know, he, he staged it so the long shadows were logical and, mm-hmm. and not just an, an effect. Yeah, and he's great. His character bits, I and mean, we talked about already the faces of the people watching the the uh, electrocution on page seven where there's where uh, the guy is giving Johnny glory his marching orders. And he has kind of like a, I'm not, I want to curse on your show, but like a, you know, crap eating grin on his face <laughs> where he's like, yeah, I get your drift. Like you could totally yeah. <laughs> picture how he talks as he's shoving a cigarette into his mouth. It just, again, Peril was just wonderful. He is probably, I take out the probably he's my single favorite comic book artist of all time. I just, I, I find looking at his stuff just so pleasurable uh, his again, I mean, his use of Zipatone is really good. I love the kind of chintzy pattern on Johnny Glory's jacket. Kind of gives it kind mm-hmm. of a cruddy, cranny, you know, shifty kind of look. Uh, I like the way the finish finger uses his powers. He doesn't overdo it. He's kind of just he's very just hand centric. I mean, Indira gets a. Uh, Gets strapped to a table and they're 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 running a blade over her like it's the mask of the Red Death. I mean this this thing is so filled with visual ideas and the Phantom Stranger uses uh turns the um snakes grabs the snakes and turns the, can transforms them. I mean it's just again the visual invention that that the Apero shows is just so good and I and also I like that all these stories are one offs. I mean, there was a couple that were continued, but for the most part, each issue of The Phantom Stranger is a different setting. There's one, there's like a snow giant, and then there's like another one about a vampire. There's one with the gentleman ghost. Like each one is, it really feels like a TV show where it's just like an hour long TV show, 10 o'clock NBC, right after the, you know, the Snoop sisters, we're going to have Phantom Stranger starring Elaine Delon as the Phantom Stranger. And he's going to be doing these things. It has that vibe to it. And it's just terrific. In one way, the Phantom Stranger you know, can work in those Justice League type of settings. But one of the criticisms, I think, is somewhat fair, is that he shows up, is mysterious, points them in one direction, doesn't solve the problem that he could have, disappears yeah. again, comes back at the end. And But I think in a solo story, that sort of works. Just sort of pushing these humans... He's intervening in small ways, and I think that's maybe that works more with mortals Mm -hmm. than it does with superheroes. The Phantom Stranger definitely believes in the teach a man to fish philosophy. Right. No doubt about that. (laughs) Uh, I mean, they they have to skirt around it a little because uh, later on they would become much more explicit. But you get this, you know, they always hint that he is sort of an instrument of God, that he is doing the Lord's work and he is nudging in that direction. And because the Phantom Stranger's powers are so indeterminate, you really could have him do anything. And so if you keep him that, yes, in terms of his powers, he literally could do anything. He could defeat Superman if he wanted to because he's a magical being. But he doesn't because there is some other 
theoretical concept that's keeping him from getting that heavily involved. So all he can do is nudge. Is, is now he does a little more in some stories than others, but yeah, he doesn't come in and just solve everything because then that that wouldn't be fun. You know, I mean, you need to have him feel like there's some inherent limit to what he can do. So he comes in, he sets up the story, nudges the characters in the direction they need to go. Sometimes gets a little more involved, but yeah, he's kind of on the margins a little. And I think that's what makes him unique you know i mean for the protagonist especially for a guy being the star of his own title those marching orders are somewhat similar to the specters mm-hmm. but the specter usually takes it in a much different direction the spanner stranger never picked up a planet and hit somebody <laughs> over the head with it never did it. right <laughs> but you can see the the need to in both cases to sort of maybe limit them it's to put some limitations on their abilities in in certain settings it's to some extent, there's something when, you know, we were making up characters as kids or making up powers for ourselves. And uh, I can fly, and I can turn invisible, and I have super strength, <laughs> and... I can, I can go back and, in time, I can and I can duplicate in... myself, and I can... Yeah, all right, all right, let's slow down. There's a point at which I mean, you can be overpowered as, yeah. a, as a character. Yeah. And, you know, there's that, that delicate writing balance. That has to be managed there, definitely. Uh, Ween and Apero do that pretty darn well here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Again, I love Johnny Glory. Again, in the opening page, where he's about to be executed, and he's mouthing off to the warden. Yeah. I love that. He's like, Shime, time sure flies when you're having fun. Don't it, warden. You make it difficult to like you, Glory. Like me, warden? I don't care if you spit my eye. In five more minutes, I'll be beyond caring about anything. That is a very Kesarasara attitude yeah. to have. <laughs> And we even get flashbacks to some of his crimes, which is a great little detail. The second page of the story is nine panels that intercuts between Johnny Glory heading off to his doom and some of the things that he did. Again, that's a kind of very balanced view of things, you know, I mean, because the cover is clearly not, I don't know, maybe this is putting too much emphasis on, but the cover is not pro-death penalty because it's it's putting you in the in the field of those six people of like, wow, actually having to watch this, this is pretty grim. But but here we're seeing that, you know, what this guy did, this guy's a pretty bad guy. The final panel is a big, almost silhouette of the guy with his hand on the switch. It's just a really one, again, a paro, <laughs> a master of staging things. There's no sense that Glory was uh, inappropriately convicted. No. You know, no. that he didn't do this. Yeah, that, no, yeah, we yeah, see him. There, there, like, there's no doing, sense of that. There's no DNA evidence that's going to exonerate Johnny <laughs> Glory. He's a, he's a rotten SOB. <laughs> At least just for this story, we'll give you the chance to give the verdict. And I think I know where you're going to go with this, Rob, but would this book be worth a quarter? Oh, most certainly. It's just, <laughs> this book would have been worth a quarter at whatever era quarter was actually worth a quarter. Exactly. Now a quarter is worth three cents or whatever the exchange rate is, because this is, this is really well done. And you can even not even bother to read the Dr. 13 story, which is what I recommend. <laughs> Well, I will withhold my judgment till after I talk about that second story. But again, contracts and payments being what they are, yes. we're going to have to say goodbye to Rob at this point. Great to have you here. I really enjoyed it. We didn't even get to talk about Roger's Super Skittle Bowl ad, which is, <laughs> <laughs> which is it's one of those things where that was actually a game. People in the 70s are very easily amused. <laughs> But uh, no, thank you. I really, uh, I, I listen to the show. I like it. And I'm very happy to, to be on and especially to talk about a comic that I love so much. Certainly appreciate your Phantom Stranger expertise on this one. Very helpful. It finally comes in handy. <laughs> the one time. Well, one time. I mean, other than the scores of women 
Well, uh, very, yes, other than that, in the, when you were running ramp in the 80s and 90s. Other than that. <laughs> There's nothing women like more than hearing about the fan of strength. <laughs> now, before we let you go, where can we find you online to hear your podcast about comics, movies, music, and whatever else strikes your fancy? All my shows are on the, our network, which is, of course, the Firewater Podcast Network, which you can find at firewaterpodcast.com. One more promo, and then I, all alone, by myself, solo, will cover the backup story. Hello, listeners. I am Dr. G, the man of nerdology. I am the host of The Secret Sagas of the Multiverse, part of the Pulp to Pixel Podcasts. Secret Sagas of the Multiverse is a review and discussion show where I and my rogues gallery of co-hosts take on topics related to comic books, superheroes, genre fiction, movies, television, and much more. We look at comics and comic characters across the many different media out there, from original print source material to the recent renaissance of television, movies, and digital media. If you love geek culture as much as we do, then tune in to our semi-weekly podcast series. Episodes of this and other Pulp to Pixel podcasts can be found at pulptopixel.blogspot.com, the Pulp to Pixel podcast Facebook page, through iTunes, or through Stitcher under the Pulp to Pixel podcasts. Man, you come right out of a comic book. The Pulp to Pixel Podcasts, exploring the media multiverse of geek culture. And we're back. Okay, technically speaking, I'm back. With the story of Dr. Terrence 13. Start with a quick history of Dr. 13, also known as the Ghost Breaker. He appeared in nine consecutive issues of Star Spangled Comics in 1951 and 52, including landing the cover space a number of times in that brief run. But he pretty much disappeared after that, until this title appeared around 1970, which reprinted some of his early stories, then teamed him with The Stranger for maybe six or seven stories, which must have driven poor Rob Kelly crazy. If it wasn't clear from that prior segment, Rob is, to put it mildly, not a fan. As a matter of fact, when I clarified to him that the two of us would just be covering the Phantom Stranger story and not the whole issue, his exact reaction was, thank goodness, Dr. 13 is such a drip. He then took a few more minutes to consider his thoughts and added, I can see it now, DC Offices, 1971. You know what kids love? A character who tediously explains why everything about the character they bought the comic for is a lie. I think we've got a winner here. Where was I? Oh, right. Dr. 13's history. After teaming up with the stranger for those half dozen issues or so, he eventually became the backup story, and that run ended with the next issue, actually. Now, over the last few years here in the 2010s, he appeared in backups on a few issues of New 52 All-Star Western, and most recently has turned up in Scooby-Doo Team-Up. 
All right, on to the story, Woman of Stone. Like The Phantom Stranger, it was also written by Len Wein, with art this time by Tony DiZaniga. As our story starts, it's morning in the Mediterranean. Maria 13, the wife of the famed Ghostbreaker, enters an antique shop and witnesses a shoplifting. The shopkeeper pursues the thief out onto the street, where with a glance, like the Medusa of myth, she transforms the shopkeeper into stone. Marie recounts her tale to her husband, but Dr. Terrence 13 is a bit dubious, to say the least. 13's investigation leads him to an archaeological excavation site. He questions the foreman, Stavros Narcos, when a mad elderly woman accosts the men. She wildly rants that by selling the antiquities of the gods of his heritage, Narcos will eventually face their wrath. Narcos' wife arrives with lunch, and Dr. 13 catches her when she stumbles over a loose boulder at the dig site. 13 publicly makes it known that he has solved the case. After sending his wife away, the doctor waits in his hotel room, and soon enough the Medusa appears. 13 dodges the attack, only to be set upon by Narcos, the foreman from the dig site. 13 shatters a lamp over the man's head, but the Medusa closes in, and then a local law enforcer appears and draws his gun on the Medusa, who is revealed to be Narco's wife. By using a gun that fired a compressed stream of potassium silicate, she was able to give the flesh of her victims a stone-like quality. When she fell against 13 at the dig site, and he caught her, he noticed an odd residue on her arms from her unusual weapon. Though 13 has solved the case, he does admit he is uncertain as to the motives. Perhaps Narcos felt guilt at what he was doing to his heritage and tried to regain those pieces of his homeland. Or perhaps it was the will of the gods. The end. Okay, so what did I think of this one? You know, Rob Kelly raises an interesting point. The debunker is a long-standing character archetype, but maybe the place to put that character is not in a book featuring another character who has clearly supernatural-based powers. Now, of course, the presence of the supernatural does not mean that there are no fakers. One of the Spectre's very early adventures, like in his first ten stories or so, back in the more fun days, was busting a fake seance. So, being in a world of supernatural events and beings does not necessarily mean that every seemingly supernatural event or being is legitimate. There can still be fakes, so the debunker character would still be necessary. But that does not mean that every instance of supposed spiritual involvement or intervention of the gods is a fake. Given the nature of the DCU, you would think that Dr. 13 would eventually run into a legitimate act beyond our material plane. It does really make me curious about those team-up issues from a little earlier in this run. How did he and the stranger work together? I imagine it was a little like those X-Files episodes where every time Mulder and Scully split up, something freaky happens to Mulder. And whenever they're together, nothing weird, nothing alien, nothing beyond explanation, nothing, not a Zippo. 
but to this story specifically. Six pages, it is a complete story beginning, middle, and end. Of course, it has to move at breakneck speed to accomplish that. When I was reading this, I thought a lot about the Golden Age books I've read from the Digital Comics Museum, as discussed on various episodes of the Comics Reading Journal. In a lot of those issues, the title story may run 15 to 20 pages, and then be followed by lots of 5 to 6 backup pages to make up the 60 or 70 pages of the issue. Those longer stories have room for multiple suspects, a red herring, a range of clues, a more detailed detection process, a few fight scenes, and then a resolution. But the short stories in those issues just don't have the room for that. They tend to be like this story. One crime, one suspect, one clue, one confrontation, one solution. And in comparison, those shorter stories always pale. And in comparison to the excellent 18-page Phantom Stranger story that we talked about earlier, this average-ish six-pager just falls short. I actually liked Doctor 13 in All-Star Western, so it's not just a knee-jerk dislike of the character. I'm no Rob Kelly. But this one, it's so short it has to follow a template, it has to follow a pattern. Len Wein didn't go from being an excellent writer to an average-ish writer in half an issue. He had one-third the real estate to tell the story, and I'll agree a bit with Rob on this one, he did have a less compelling character. Although I think the big thing is that 13 is a less flexible character than The Stranger. As we were talking with Rob, The Phantom Stranger can be involved in a wide range of types of stories. The types of stories that Dr. 13 finds himself in are much more rigid, and there's a rhythm to his stories. There has to be a pattern. It's not whether the mysterious event is a fake, it's how it's a fake and who is perpetrating the fake. There's a, almost a straitjacket to his stories that even the best writers are going to struggle with. There were certainly parts of this that I liked. The exotic foreign setting of the story. I liked the fact that Mrs. 13 was part of the story. The married couple as globe-spanning adventurers is a different spin on this type of character. The ancient archaeology angle. The compressed air gun. That was an interesting solution and made somewhat science-y, I guess. Although the turning to stone part seemed incredibly contrived and, and unrealistic. I also liked the commentary at the end, that maybe all this was from their guilty conscience about disturbing their culture's ancient historical artifacts. That made sense in a sense. Was this a great story? No. Was it a competent story? One that got us from A to B to C in a professionally written way? Yes, I think so. The verdict on Phantom Stranger 21. The first story was great. A legitimate classic. And the second, it, it was fine. It was okay. It, it passed the time. And it did not detract from the greatness of the first story. Like I explained earlier in the episode, I recognize that this is not a standard book that you're likely to run across in a quarter bin. But I did get it for 25 cents and is one of the all-time great quarter bin steals. Thank you, World's Greatest Comics. And thanks again to Rob Kelly from the Fire and Water Podcast Network for joining me on the Phantom Stranger segment. 
That wraps up my coverage of Phantom Stranger 21, bringing episode 83 of the Quarterbin Podcast to a close. In episode 84, we're going to be continuing our Halloween time series of Phantom Stranger episodes by covering issue one of the four-issue Phantom Stranger miniseries from DC Comics again, cover dated October 1987. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode, The Phantom Stranger, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. I, I never re- I think it was the, the use of quarter bins that got me to realize that I how old I've gotten, because when I was a kid, the quarter box got me stuff that I was interested in in the 70s. And right. now the quarter bin is stuff from 2002 that I don't <laughs> give about. I don't care like, about. Oh no, I don't care about wet works. I give me <laughs> something, give me a Marvel team up. What are you guys doing? So I realized like, well, that's I've funny. just aged out of it. Yeah, that's, that's right. Problem. That's fine. By myself, solo, we'll cover the backup story. Have fun. <laughs> Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.